Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Uh, the reviews are really nice, aren't they? I have a little browse here now. Uh, informative, accessible, and interesting. Fun too. <laughs> fun too. Because you're, you're not supposed to be fun otherwise when you're news, but that's think nice. I probably really boring, uh, actually. Well, well, one of us is anyway. It's nice to read them. It's like it's like it's like running a bistro or something like that, isn't it? Definitely a result of the knowledge the three hosts have on the topics they're discussing, but also the chemistry between them. Oh, oh, beautiful. Okay, never been yeah. a listener of news podcasts, but I have been converted. Well, thank you very much, uh, Leah Fahi, for that one. Another one more for us. I listen to a few news podcasts. What I like about this is the accessibility of it. That's nice. It's not dumbed down, but there also isn't long-winded questions where hosts and guests are trying to sound smart. <laughs> uh, I also like the tapas style of talking about oh my different gosh. news stories. Tapas. News Come tapas. Here. Tapas. News, news tapas. tapas. Little play to this, little play to that. That's, That's what we thing. do. Right. <laughs> Let's, Let's get back to the Very welcome along to this latest episode of the Group Chat Podcast. I'm news correspondent Sarah King and I'm joined by my fellow correspondents Gavin Riley. Hello. And Richard Chambers. Hello. We're going to start by asking you guys to subscribe. Yes, please do. Yes. Leave a comment because we love the comments. Because we keep meaning We're to do this that. because that's kind of like podcast vernacular. Like it's part of yeah. the furniture. You're supposed to kind of go like and subscribe or leave us already. But literally actually, the, the biggest housekeeping item yeah. we have every week and, and we never and do we it. we keep yeah. forgetting to do it. Uh, but thank you for everyone who's done it so far. And please do keep leaving it because it is actually quite important for trying to, to keep them up in high rank to make sure that it reaches a bigger audience. So thanks to everyone who's done it. And please do keep doing it. Now, I didn't actually realize it was important to do it though. So, I mean, I'm a listener of podcasts who so doesn't realize. Oh, listen, this isn't some sort of Elon Musk world where we all yeah. know what the <laughs> algorithm looks like we just have to do whatever the algorithm says so apparently it's important though so please do that so, okay so, so. well we're going to get down to it guys first of all we're going to start talking about the uh, rent increase nine percent increase nationally uh, average yearly rent for dublin now higher than the minimum wage yeah not, not shocking no not shocking but terrible like, but not shocking, hardly what you would build a society on if like the average the wage that you could rely on as a full-time worker is literally not enough to even pay for housing let alone anything else like you know feeding yourself or clothing yourself like it, it's hardly a surprise but i think it's a the, the fact that it's now gone up nine percent a year and it's kind of reached this this magical magical but this kind of tipping point where it's a very symbolic thing where like you know you could be working full-time and not even earn enough to pay for the roof over your head like it, it's, it's a pretty damning statistic Especially with like the, the level of increase, like we've been talking about rent and the, the housing situation in Dublin and around the country for years and years and years. This is the highest growth we've seen in like five years. Yeah. Mm. Um, that's awful. But having a look through the RTB report on this earlier on, one of the things they mentioned as well is that there's a, there's a lack of new tenancies coming on stream as well. Mm. So clearly people are either staying on longer in situations which might be somewhat precarious or they're locked in mm. at high rents or there's a shortage of supply as well for yeah. new rental properties. 
none of which is good news if we were looking for this trend to turn yeah, around. Of course, you, you can understand why people wouldn't be leaving on a whim either because in previously, if you might have thought, oh, I don't like this place or like, the household is kind of breaking up and I want to move on, that you sort of feel like you had a little more comfort to do it. But now when there is just nowhere available and they're all so expensive, of course you're more likely to just stay put where you are and stay put with the housemates that you had unless you've had like a bigger changing your circumstances, you know? Mm. Double as well what it was 10 years ago. It's another double. fact of, yeah. what it, of where we're at. Basically, if you're looking at the Dublin thing as being like 2,000 euro per month, um, that's it's a double. a frightening amount of money. It is awful. But it's actually, it's interesting because they put this out on Twitter uh, earlier on. They put it on Instagram as well. And it's kind of surprised at the amount of comments which are just like, go live with your parents or just leave Dublin. As if, and th- this was actually based around the, the fact around minimum wage for the year. If you're working full-time minimum wage at 10.50 an hour, that you couldn't possibly afford average rent in Dublin. Mm. Um, because even with all of your money. But it was interesting that people were like, ah, oh, but that's only the minimum wage people. And it's like, well, okay, you're living in the capital city where most of the... You know, yeah, the retail jobs. jobs, all the service yeah. surface uh, service jobs in the country, a lot of them based around Dublin. All of those, a lot of those are a minimum wage, and we're just basically t- saying to people who are working a minimum wage, then, mm. all right, just go live somewhere else and commute in. Mm. Is that the message? The person who and sells like, you a bottle of water in Centra, who's working full time on a minimum wage, and you're commuting told, is oh, you're expensive. Just, yeah. Exactly, and that's anyway. only getting more expensive. Yeah. But just the, the point I want to make, because I just find the thing and the the, the, the the incessant pushing by some people around, just go live with your parents for a couple of years until mm. it's grand. Mm. Well, there's a huge level of presumption around that. Yeah, there is. Um, and I just find that it's a little bit uncaring. Oh, like Threshold, the National Housing Charity issued a statement on this today as well. Just wanted to point to one of the things that they said is that uh, this report hides some of the incredibly worrying increases on a county and city level, particularly those subject to rent pressure zones and a 2% cap on rent increase. And they go on to say that this is money that many people do not have to spare given the spike in inflation and huge increases in the cost of energy and feel exactly what we were saying there yeah. in terms of that idea of people being forced to commute. But I just it hides to... the increases. A report that found that the average rate has yeah. gone up 9% is still hiding. Mm. hiding some of the increases. Yeah, it's concerning. It's frightening. It is frightening. I just want to take you through some of the comments that we got in uh, just via Instagram, as Richard mentioned there earlier. Um, one lady says, 2,150 a month for a one-bed apartment in Rathgar in Dublin 6. We also have to pay €50 Euro to park our car in the apartment car park. Over two grand a month for, one apart- for a one-bed apartment yeah. in Dublin. But the thing about this is, is that you'll also get other people in the comments who are like, yeah, but like, just move on and try and buy somewhere. Don't need to. How are you meant car. to buy somewhere if you're spending <laughs> yeah. two grand a month? Yeah. On how, rent? how are you ever supposed to pull together the deposit or have any kind of? But also, like the resources. banks will say, "Oh well, we're not seeing any capacity here to save," mm. even though of your mortgage might be less then yeah. than the two thousand euro yeah. or whatever. It's just it, like it, it feels like a trap for so mm. many people of our generation and beneath as well, yeah. and it's just. Yeah, it's but incessant. Even if you go outside of Dublin, actually, just want to read yeah. another comment here. Athlone, one bed apartment, 800 euro a month. Very lucky to be paying so little, to be honest, says this person. I mean, 800 euro is still a lot of money. You'd want to be earning like decent money to be paying 800 euro a month yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, that's not Athlone, accessible it's, it's, to everybody. It's not, you're not necessarily going to have the same standard of, you know, maybe urban high-tech salary that you might keep you going in the same way as you would in Dublin that you might be able to get by. That 800 euro in Athlone given the relative income you're going to have for jobs around that area, mm. isn't really going to be all that affordable. 
Another person here says, uh, not me, but a friend of mine is paying 1800 a month for a one-bed apartment uh, near Houston Station in Dublin. Uh, she says, my mortgage is half of that for a two-bed terraced house in Dundrum. Uh, there's just so many examples here. Uh, another so, sorry, Dundrum, Dublin or Dundrum, Tipperary? Dublin. Because <laughs> even like, yeah. mortgage of 900 a month in Dundrum is... Great. Yeah, it's good. That, yeah. <laughs> that's that's like great. That's like like a a my wife and I are now in our house. Uh, we we were very lucky enough to, to be able to just about get our feet in the ladder before this current rise of the last five or six years really mm -hmm. took off. So we were we were got in at a thankfully a sort of a, a useful enough time. Um, and the house a couple of doors down went up for rent at around the same time as we bought. And when we bought, our mortgage was about a hundred more than the rent was. Mm. And since then, because interest rates just came down, our mortgage has gone down a little bit and rent, of course, has only gone one way. We're now a house identical to ours in our estate is literally a thousand more per month. Wow. Like, which is just, it's so wrong. No, it's so I need just a, another couple like myself and Kira, just you know, who happened to meet a couple of years later or just didn't have the resources to be able to get on the ladder when they did and are hit to the tune of 10 grand a year more because they just weren't lucky enough to get in there at the right time. It's, it's awful. No, it's outrageous. So awful. Just to go back outside of Dublin again, because I feel like whenever we have this conversation, we're always yes, talking about yeah. Dublin. And I actually think it's really interesting to hear the feedback from people outside of Dublin. So um, 980 euro for a four bed house in Carlo. Cheap for Carlo, but house in terrible condition, mould, leaks, etc. So that speaks to the point that you were making about people will stay on perhaps longer in places that aren't suitable because it's... it's you have to take the risk. You have yeah. a risk of yeah. whether or not you're going to find somewhere which is in your price bracket mm. or whether or not you'll be able to have a lease which is in any way secure. Yeah. So, like, I mean, that is a thing. You, are, you can be caught in a situation which is far from ideal, could be below minimum acceptable standards even. Mm. 1,100 euro in Carlo, three-bed house. Now we paid same cost in Dublin last year to share a house with three other people. So, wow. Yeah, that's, again, I suppose yeah. that speaks to this, which this is idea may, of moving maybe out. Maybe yeah, where, where the, the new era of remote mm. working will work for people. If you only have to be in the car one or two days a week, that it's possible to live there and then have a much more comfortable standard of living. But then, of course, there's still the two days a week where you're going to be sitting on the M9 for an hour and a half up and down. So yeah. it's, it's not, it doesn't work for everyone. No, just last one there, just outside of Dublin. Cork luxury one-bed apartment for 1,450 a month. Uh, moving to Mayo in two months and we'll be renting a two-bed for 1,000. So... There is, there's value for money in some places, yeah. but it really depends. And you can but, get really lucky. But if, if your circumstances or your industry yeah. enables you to work in those areas where there's better value housing, but if mm. you don't, like, like our line of work, you can't do it from rural If you can't, if you can't yeah. remote work and the industry that you're looking to work in isn't in any of those counties where mm. it's less than a thousand euro a month. Mm. Yeah. Well, to live on your yeah. own now, it seems that you really have to be able to spend a yeah. thousand euro a month minimum to be able to afford to live um, completely by yourself. So it's, a, it's certainly something that is not, I mean, it, which it's, is a, it's just a huge, because then that's, that's at the very minimum, 12,000 yeah. euro a year, which means that like before, that's after you've been taxed and paid whatever else as well, which means that mm. just to cover your rent alone, your earnings have to be like over 20,000 a year purely to take care of putting the roof over your head. And then anything more you earn after that then is what gets taxed and you can pay for your food and clothing and fuel and everything else. Like it's such a, an enormous chunk of everyone's resources. It's yeah, just It's just so easy to see why people are just getting so despondent about this. And people have been crying out about this for years and years mm -hmm. now. That like, I just don't know. Like, I mean, even people of our generation, as I say again and below, like, how do they look at the situation? And you hear in the doll time after time, you hear 
yeah, we're getting on, we're building new things and all that sort of mm. stuff. And it, like, it seems to be just this circular argument that you hear in the doll around as well. Every yeah. single day, oh, we're people are scrimping we're and saving to try and get through this. And yeah. it's just, I just don't think it answers anything about, it doesn't say anything about the situation, the social impact of actually what's happening and the lives that are put on hold, whether that's couples or people on their own or people with small kids who are in precarious rental situations mm. who are just asked to go along with this because there is no way out of it that we've found over the last <clears throat> yeah. five, six years of this. Mm. But even it's this concept of the bank of mum and dad and that everyone is expected yeah, to rely on their parents to support them through it. Like not everyone has the opportunity to do that, but not even just financially, say people are being asked to get their deposits from their parents. They're also being told to move back home in with their parents. That's a huge pressure on, on you know, couples who maybe, you know, are heading for retirement, wants to enjoy their time by it's themselves. It's presuming that everybody has the perfect coaching. ideal family at home. Yeah. And that people's, you know, personal relationships and dynamics in their own Absolutely. families are yeah. exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. That we all have the same exact uh, it, monolith of a family. It's, also, yeah. it's all on the presumption as well that the bank of mum and dad have already cleared off their mortgage, which if mm. you bought in the 1990s isn't necessarily guaranteed yeah. either. Yeah. You know? yeah, absolutely. So it's a really, it's a really difficult situation. I think like it's, it's disgraceful in so many ways that there's people of our age that are still struggling. And I think whatever about, you know, if you're, if you're doing it with someone else, trying to do it by yourself, it's just not geared towards single people either. No. I think it's something that is for another day's discussion, but it's definitely uh, very difficult if people are trying to do it by themselves. Uh, um, one final word on that, actually, just because you mentioned the, the, the difficulties for young people, and that's absolutely true. What we don't talk about enough in the media is the challenges for people who actually meet a bit later in life or mm. who've gone through relationships and those relationships have ended and then they find themselves yeah. newly single again yeah. and then they might, might only meet their partner when they're approaching 40 or even into their 40s. They often find it impossible to get a mortgage even if they have the money because they're told that, well, you really want to have your mortgage paid off by the time you've retired. And if you come knocking on the bank when you're 45, they're, they're going to tell you, well, you're going to be retired at 67 or 68, so we need you to be able to afford like a 20-year mortgage. And like a 20-year mortgage, no matter how much, if you're borrowing over 30 or 35 years, it might be manageable. Like mm -hmm. Paying over 20 years is, is the crucial point of difference, which will make it unaffordable for a lot of people. So if you meet somebody in your early 40s or that's just the way your life has worked out or you've, you've had a relationship breakdown, like mortgages then are almost out of reach because you don't have enough of a working life left. How depressing yeah. is that? I know, God. Very. We have yeah. to. We will definitely be revisiting this topic again because it's just something that unfortunately is not going away. Uh, we're going to move on. This uh, investigation into Leo Varadkar, um, Gavin, is continuing. Mm. What is the latest on that? What exactly is happening? Uh, well, actually, we're recording this on Wednesday night, and Leo Varadkar has just uh, spoken publicly for the first time about all of this and uh, says that he still maintains his innocence. That what is being uh, alleged as a criminal charge is not something that he did. Um, we should probably explain to people actually what, what is being investigated because mm. maybe the nature of the alleged crime here has maybe gone over people's heads or hasn't been dealt with enough in the last week. Um, nobody denies that Leo Varadkar shared a document which was marked as confidential, a deal struck between the government and the IMO with a rival organisation, the NAGP. Uh, Leo Varadkar says that he did this because he wanted the NAGP to share the details of this contract so that they would canvass in its favour because GPs needed a ballot to accept it. What is alleged, of course, is that, and this is somewhat borne out by the text messages which were obtained and published by Village magazine, is that the NAGP did not intend for this to be them campaigning in favour of the deal. They were a rival of the IMO and they wanted to use this to undercut or to uh, somehow undermine the negotiating efforts of a rival group. The issue is proving in black and white that Leo Varadkar shared the contract knowing that this was the gain or the, the intention of the NAGP. Because what is being investigated is an alleged corruption offence. What does corruption mean? Basically, it means that you acted knowing that you were giving someone inappropriate gain. You were conferring a gain on somebody. 
And Leo Varadkar's argument is, well, I didn't do it for the, the gain of the NAGP. I did it because I wanted this deal to be successfully uh, accepted by GPs. And that's his argument. Um, what is interesting about all this politically, of course, is that Leo Varadkar is supposed to become Taoiseach again in about seven and a half months. And if all of this still hasn't been cleaned up at the time, then it becomes an issue. Because, and people will probably wonder, why is it an issue if he's going to become Taoiseach? He's already tarnished it. Shouldn't it be an issue now? Mm. And of course, you know, it is an issue. It's become an issue. It was raised in the doll. There was a motion of no confidence in him. It is an issue. But in December, when he's supposed to become Taoiseach again, there has to be another vote. Michal Martin has to resign as Taoiseach on December the 15th, and the doll has to therefore elect a new one. And if it's going to be Leo Varadkar, there's going to be a lot of people within the government parties, particularly even within Fine Gael, who are going to have serious issues about electing someone as Taoiseach who still has an alleged corruption offence hanging over them from the last time that they were Taoiseach. And that's where the sensitivity is and whether, you know, a man is entitled to the presumption of innocence and that's Michal Martin's line. You are completely entitled to be presumed innocent until a court says otherwise. But in high office, there is a higher standard than that. You can't merely be innocent. You have to be seen to be above reproach. And if there is the suggestion that Leo Varadkar may be facing charges, or worse still, if if a prosecution has been initiated, Mm. the idea that you would allow someone become Taoiseach who is still literally about to face trial for corruption in the office of Taoiseach is a total no-go. So it, it may be a very difficult thing to prosecute. And of course, we don't know when the DPP might issue a direction as to whether it should go to court or not. But you can understand politically why it's a really sensitive thing and why 18 months after all of this broke, the fact that it hasn't yet been put completely to bed is a worry for those in government. And that's the point though, Richard, isn't it? Because like a lot of people, you were saying, you had messages from some people saying, oh, this is old news. Why don't we move on? But it's not old news and it does matter. Of course it does matter. It's literally about who runs the country mm. and whether or not they're being investigated the in committing a criminal offence. Yeah. I, f- I find like it is worth saying, like for people who do have that point of view and they're like, well, why does this matter? It doesn't really matter. We have more important things to talk about. Mm. Would they feel that way if it was another political party that they didn't like mm. that mm. this was about? I'm not sure. But I find it very interesting, Gavin, actually, how this was all handled over the weekend in terms of what was yeah. the information that was pushed out yes. to media so organisations. It was confirmed by the Garda Press Office on Saturday afternoon that the file had been handed over. So the guards have to pull together a file. They've been investigating it for literally 17 months. And on Saturday afternoon, they confirmed uh, two members of the media. I think the Irish, the Irish Independent was the first outlet to have yep. it. Um, they confirmed, right, the file has, has been concluded now. It's handed over. It's gone to the DPP. The guards have made no recommendation which, by the way, may be significant as well because often the guards would recommend a prosecution. This time around, the guards have handed over the file and have made no recommendation. They've left it entirely up to the DPP to decide. Um, but then on Saturday evening, we saw the front page of the Sun Independent and it was pointing out from some well-informed sources, presumably, that there actually was very little prospect of this being finished by December because the file, if it took 18 months to put together, the DPP might take some time to decide whether there should be a prosecution or whether one is warranted. And that, of course, is politically sensitive because, as we said, in seven and a half months' time, the guy's supposed to be taking over the country again. Mm. And can you do that if this isn't mopped up? Um, so we did have um, the Fine Gael press officer and people in Leo Varadkar camp uh, pointing people towards the last annual report of the DPP, which says that's probably not going to happen because 92% of cases are directed within six months. So there isn't the, the, they said, it, oh, sure, it's not going to happen. We're not going to have the DPP still sitting on this, wondering what's going to happen in December, because sure, no, most cases are, are dealt with early. Um, and of course, they're entitled to draw attention to that and to say that, in it's fact, all this will be It's interesting that they would as well. Mm. But it's interesting that they would. 
But yes, okay, the average case does get directed within uh, four or, or eight or 12 weeks, but the average case doesn't involve a then Taoiseach being mm. accused of corruption in the country's highest political office. So it, may, it might well take longer. And there is now apparently a practice of the DPP going back to the guards with follow-on questions or bringing in private senior counsel to help them decide whether a prosecution is warranted or whether charges might stick, given the evidence that are there. So, like, it is a very, very sensitive thing. And, you know, Fine Gael sources are quite calm about it all. They're confident that when the DPP does issue a direction, it will be no prosecution here, clean bill of health, everything's fine. But I wouldn't be confident until you actually get it in writing, you know? Yeah, but this is the next question. I know you're saying, you know, internally in the party, are there certain people or are there some people who are perhaps looking at this as an opportunity to break through and maybe, you know, reach their, <laughs> their leadership ambitions? Uh, I mean, is like, this something that's look, happening behind the scenes? No or? doubt there are. And one thing which is fascinating about the dynamic of all of this is that whenever you have a heave, no one wants to be seen to be the person who launched the heave. Because mm. if you are the person who wielded the dagger, like what's the old is a Shakespearean line? The he who wields the dagger never wears the crown. Yeah. Okay. So if you are the person who takes out, if you knife the leader, then you're already damaged goods. You can't be doing that. If you have a situation where a leader is toppled and nobody knifed them, then it's kind of fair game for everyone because you don't Open have ambitious season. people who are sort of sitting around going, God, a lovely overactor's job, but I can't be seen to be pushing him over. And if there the are a few if, people who certainly would. Well, but if the yeah. DPP then does the job for them, yeah. then they the sort of might feel like they're entitled to be a little bit more aggressive in the push. Do bear in mind as well, if, if Leo Varadkar does face prosecution, there is no way in hell he can remain in government. In fact, he probably can't remain as a Fine Gael leader. Doubtfully, whether he could even remain on as a TD mm. if he was still facing charges, even with the presumption of innocence because of the standards of high office. Um, the last Fine Gael leadership contest took about two months. So if you want to have yeah. a new Fine Gael leader in place by December the 15th to take over as Taoiseach, you need to have the job vacated by like the middle of December. You basically announce the budget and then tell Leo he's got to go. So like, if it's contested, it takes a long time to fill mm -hmm. the vacancy, so... It's... Well, to be clear, it's not happening at the moment, but let's just, you know, play <laughs> yeah. fan fantasy Finnegan yeah. leader game. Like, who are who's, the names? I mean, with well, Simon Coveney be, you know, back in the... In Simon Coveney was the preferred candidate among yeah. the grassroots uh, last yeah. time in, in this hypothetical leadership election that is not yet happening. Yeah. Um, they still hold a candle to Simon Coveney. Simon Coveney won. They do. Simon Coveney yeah. is very well loved by the Leo grassroots. Leo obviously won the last leadership election, but that's because the votes were weighted in favour of the parliamentary party. Leo, uh, <clears> Simon Coveney was by far the more popular candidate among grassroots members and even among local authority members. It was genuinely only TDs and senators that pulled Leo over the line. So Simon Coveney would be there. You have to bear in mind, though, too, that if you're electing a new leader now, you are looking at the next general election when Fine Gael will already have been in power for three terms in a row. Mm. So if you choose Simon Coveney as your leader, yes, he might be a very valuable and capable leader. But when it comes to the next general election, will he be the guy that gets you a fourth term? Or do you even expect to get another term? Do you say, we need a leader for opposition? And like the six ministers that have gone in cabinet right now, Leo Varadkar has been in cabinet since uh, day one of, of this administration, since like February 2011. Uh, Leo Varadkar has been there. It's 11 years unbroken in cabinet. Simon Coveney, exactly the same. Um, Pascal Donoghue has been in cabinet since 2014. By the next election, he could be there for 11 years, as has Heather Humphreys. Uh, Simon Harris has been in cabinet since 2016. So he's already been there for six years. The, the, the new blood is um, Helen McEntee. And then at the junior ministerial ranks, the likes of uh, Josepha Madigan or a Brendan Griffin or a Hildegard Nocton, they're the newer TDs. Mm. So it would actually be a big question as to whether they elect someone thinking that's going to be the Taoiseach and our next, our next Taoiseach are looking for another term. Or do, are they already thinking about 
the generation of rebuilding. Because well, let's, let's just talk names. Yeah, who are they talking about? They're talking Look, about Helen McEntee. They're talking about si- Simon, Simon Harris. Harris. Simon Harris, Harris has, has yeah. been vocal in the past about his but, desire and his, his wish. But to Simon Harris but, supported Simon Coveney the did, last yeah. night ferociously. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. if you were to have a battle of the Simons. But they won't you be. Know, I don't think it will be because I actually you don't think, think it will come to that. Well, no, see, they, I don't they think have to have a consensus candidate because they can't afford to spend two months choosing Go a leader. Go on, tell us. I feel like, like you've people in Finnegal say they don't see Simon Harris as much anymore. Right. In the media, and this is what they notice. This is what people in Finnegal talk he's about. In, like, he's in a who's lesser, out there? Who do you see? Profile brief. Yeah. Well, and then they say that they, they see Helen McEntee a lot. But some people would have argued that he was overexposed prior to that. So I mean, you know. It was a different time, so, some, would, some, would, some would argue that uh, his his overexposure in the last job was what ultimately brought the government down. Because bear in mind, the last election was called because there was going to be a motion of no confidence in Simon Harris. And then, lo and behold, a pandemic comes along and his reputation is completely healed. Um, but if, if it had to be done at short notice because you needed to have a new leader in place by December, you probably couldn't afford to have a contest. So then would it become... Coveney by acclamation because he's the deputy leader. I need, in a safe to, pair I need of hands. to hear your thoughts on this. I feel I mean, like you've got this be, It could be. I mean, just it's just the, those are the two names that people are in Finnegal talk about. Mm. It's Helen McIntyre and Simon Coveney. Yeah, mm. yeah. Simon Harris isn't mentioned as much as, they w- as he would have been yeah. maybe a year ago. Mm. Those are the two names, and people people who you know are deep in Finnegal. They think that Helen McEntee, they've identified her from a long way out as being mm. somebody they think will be a mm. long-term hope for the, for the yeah. party. But the only thing whether is, or not it actually ends up... Well, people do this all the time. You have, to, you have to try and choose a leader who is both a capable politician, but also has this sense of personality that people can get behind. And mm. there was an argument, yes, that Simon Harris was, was overexposed. In a way, you can almost argue that Helen McEntee, as a personality is underexposed because you, you see a lot about what she's doing in her day job, but do mm. you know very much about her as a personality beyond her family history, taking maternity leave and the circumstances of her father's passing and how she came into the door in the first place. Don't know much about her in terms of what gets her up, what, you know, what she spend her weekends doing, what, what TV does she like. Like, you, ah, don't, you don't get much start, of that on, the, on Instagram. They start wheeling you know? out a couple of feature pieces, you well, know what I mean? The, the profile's done. That's how this works, you know? It is, but the thing is that it is being talked about. Mm. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Oh, the definitely. Fact and of the it's being talked, it talked about amongst people outside of the bubble. Like, we talk about the bubble. We yeah. talk about, you know, journalists and politicians. You know, my well, civilian friends well, who don't work in media <laughs> like, that aren't, well, it's, it's you know, they're about, like, they would say, oh, is Helen McEntee going to be the next leader of Finnegan? That comes up in conversations at the brunch table. It's talked about in ways that people don't talk about a Fine Fall leadership. Yeah. yeah, that's fair. That's yeah. actually that a really fair. good point. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was, yeah. it was a time when it was like, oh, is it going to be Barry Count? Is it going to be Derek Cleary? Is it going to be Jim O'Callaghan? That's all just evaporated away now. Yeah. It's like, oh, we can only look at one leadership vacancy at a time and we've just kind of vented our, our angst with the Labour heave about a month ago. So maybe they all feel like they've, they've got it out of their hair now. Well, anyway, look, it's not happening at the moment. but uh, No, but, but it's, it's yeah. definitely something to watch because even yeah. if the chances are that a prosecution would be too precarious to bring and even if there ends up being no charge... How long will it take for that decision to come? Uh, Because there's a serious banana skin if it doesn't Mm. get done in the next six months. Absolutely. Okay. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Last week we spoke about Twitter, we spoke about Elon Musk, and I think did, none of us really thought last week this was going to happen as fast as it not, did. Not as quickly as it No, we didn't. I think we were like a couple of, we were like, oh, there's a couple of weeks in this. But there is a Twitter takeover happening now. Um, I suppose, is it going to change um, free speech, Richard? Is there, is there a risk in all of this? I mean, I don't know. I, were you surprised at the day when it actually happens so quickly? Uh, probably am, in terms of the speed of it's happening. Yeah. But not... Surprised that money talks. I know, of course not. Yeah. <laughs> like, what was yeah, it? Yeah. Your tweet at world's richest man. World's gets richest man wants. gets what he wants, and that's what happened. Um, some interesting things about. I was reading a piece today on Reuters, and they were just weighing up. It was like, oh my god, this happened very easily in the end. Or well, it isn't. It isn't a done done deal yet. But the fact that now Elon Musk is sitting there, having committed to spend forty four billion dollars on this thing which he will soon discover is a lot harder to run mm. than it is to buy, that he might want to nuke the deal and pull out. Mm-hmm. And there's one thing which is in the agreement between him and Twitter, which is that he doesn't go after Twitter employees. And if you read his tweets over the last couple of days, you could imply that some of what he said has been quite critical of senior Twitter So, so it's, it's part people. of the deal that he's not allowed to like single out staff members as for part it. of the merger agreement which is published by the New York Times today he can't disparage Twitter or any of its employees um, disparage apparently according to lawyers is in the eye of the beholder okay um, it's only going to play out it's only going to come into fact is if it actually went up to court but he has certainly as an outsider non-legal thing he has talked crap about people involved <laughs> in Twitter. Freedom that's, of speech. That's the official for it. Yeah. But it's just an interesting thing is if you signed up to a deal which says don't do this. Yeah. And, and to and some degree you are doing that. Yeah. Some people are like, well, because well, it, it all like it all does feel like look, I mean the, the guy knows his business better th- than I do or anyone else does, but it does feel like a serious impulse buy. That it, it's only a couple of weeks since he started talking he built up his nine percent stake and he was like, Well, I joined the board. And then he agreed not to join the board, mm-hmm. partly because as a member of the board, you couldn't disparage the company either. An impulse buy is walking past the vending machine out in the corridor and getting the Snickers yeah, on the way into the podcast. Yeah. Like, when you know you're a billionaire, Twitter's yeah. an impulse buy. You know what I mean? Like, it is what it is. It's, like, it's short, but, relative. Like, we were talking last week about how he's a, a, you know, we could describe him as a free speech absolutist and that was going to be mm. the danger of the platform. He has kind of interestingly tried to walk that back a little bit or at least mm. to to refine our understanding of that in the last couple of days. Because now yeah. he's saying, well, by, by freedom of speech, I mean whatever your country allows. If your country doesn't allow hate speech or doesn't allow you to, as some countries do, if it doesn't allow you to deny the existence of the Holocaust, Twitter's not going to let you do it. So he's suddenly now not saying that it's going to be this sort of legal bandit country free-for-all. He's only going to allow you to say yeah. whatever is legal, mm. which at least is a, a refinement. 
But it he doesn't deal with... He did say that with... in that TEDx thing, though, uh, like back uh, like two or three weeks ago, he did say that mm. like Twitter would follow under his, you know, his leadership, that Twitter would follow the rules of the yeah. country it operated in. Which, which, which at least means that he's not, not a total absolutist. Yeah. But it does still mean that uh, content which is not currently allowed on Twitter, certain types of harassment mm. or negative commentary or disinformation, stuff which is, uh, Mark Little used the phrase the other day, lawful but awful, mm. uh, will, will now be allowed, it would seem, under his watch. So, for example, some, uh, you know, Russian media outlets or governmental accounts denying the, the facts of what is happening on the ground in Ukraine mm. is not unlawful. Like, you're allowed to lie. Mm. But Twitter right now says, can't do that. That's, that's bad faith. You can't do that. And it would seem now that's going to be permissible. And it's just one example of things of how the law does allow you to say things, but it doesn't mean that you're a very nice person for doing it. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't mind saying it. I took a massive step back from Twitter. Yeah. Like, both of you know that. Mm. Like, I came off Twitter. Like, I didn't come off Twitter completely. Like, I have to do a certain amount of Twitter for work. But, like, like you know, I went through a terrible time on Twitter yeah. before Christmas. Mm. Like, and I reported all of those tweets and nothing was ever done about it. Yeah. And Twitter is not um, a safe place for for people that, you know, if you report something and it doesn't get dealt with, you don't want to be there anymore. Like, I, I did not want yeah. to be there really mm. anymore, to be honest. I'm doing as much as I have to do yeah. for work. But, but that, that's an example of, yeah. of commentary. Well, it's, it's actually debatable whether it was lawful, but if, if it does fall on the side of it being lawful, it's, it is evidently, it's awful. Mm. But if it is lawful, then Twitter right now is hardly, you know, it's hardly a wonderful place to be. Uh, but if, if that is now going to be completely fair game where the terms of service aren't even that oh, you can't say mean things about someone. Then but how do you make, yeah. what do you make of that then, Zara? Like, I mean, this idea, like, you have everybody, and I can understand where people are coming from when they say this, that, like, they're concerned about what, what will happen in terms of hate speech and in terms of, you know, um, racism and misinformation, mm. disinformation on Twitter. To me, and probably to you as well, I'd say, mm. this sounds like stuff that's already on Twitter. It's already there. Like, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Like, sometimes I, fear, I hear this conversation with the worries about Elon Musk, and I'm like... Twitter wasn't really like a very pleasant place anyway. Yeah. I don't know how it's that different. Well, it's not as a hell site for a reason. <laughs> yeah, like it's a dip. But I never had that experience before. Like it was new for me, kind of like, not new for me, but I think that I just, like you and I had spoken, like we've all spoken about this. And I think I kind of, in terms of how you handle things on Twitter, like sometimes you would mute people that would say really vicious, nasty stuff. Mm. And then it just got, to, you'd mute them and you might report it and then nothing was being done about it. Mm. And it just gets to a point then where you're like, every day you're blocking a bunch of people who are just, assholes like to be honest yeah yeah it's you know a, it's a very hard and like, i don't mind anybody being i think that like you have to be able to come in and be you know have your viewpoint and be critical but when it becomes personal that's actually yeah, not okay it, it definitely reached a new level didn't it early, yeah. not long into the pandemic yeah. because suddenly like people who may have been somewhat passive up to that point were suddenly like in our, all of our mentions yeah. in and all of our colleagues as well and you were either a government patsy because you weren't challenging enough what was being said mm. Or you were undermining the national response by, yeah. by being in any way sort of sceptical or even looking for scrutiny on these things. Mm. And a lot of people found it very difficult to get the sweet spot. But if that's at the start of it, mm. then... 18 or 24 months in and people still think that you're being a government patsy or that but you're I don't not being... Think that like, that's not the main the thing. Issue, really. I don't want to get into it, to be honest, because yeah. I don't really want to give it any oxygen, Like, but I would just say that, you know, all of us have experienced a certain level of trolling, but I would say, and, you know, the nature of the trolling that I got was different to the nature yes. of tro the trolling that men got. Mm -hmm. totally and I think, yeah. you know, Absolutely. other female colleagues of ours, journalists who've been on Twitter have had similar experiences. And I think it's unfortunate, really, that... Um, you know, and I wish I didn't kind of feel like that, actually. I wish that I, you know, yeah. didn't let it upset me, but it did upset me in the end. And I did feel like it pushed me back off Twitter a little bit. And I'm not really using Twitter. Like, if I look at my screen time, 
I'm probably on Twitter for about 10 minutes a week now. Which is terrible, like, because this is the job and I should be on it, but I'm not. Um, not The one thing that is maybe somewhat uh, optimistic or a little sunnier outlook about Elon Musk's sort of manifesto for the side as well is that although he might be a bit more permissive about what you're allowed to say, he also says that you're you're basically going to be required to at least not publicly disclose your identity. Not every account is going to have the equivalent of a blue tick where they know exactly who you are. But the site at least needs to know who you are. The idea Mm. would be that you would not be allowed to use the site unless you have already verified your own identity with it. I don't buy it because you'd be kicking off so many users, but at least if the manifesto is that, at least the site will know who is abusing you and therefore potentially make it easier for you to take action if that's necessary. Mm. Might be something more optimistic, but yeah. Look at this, man, that's not going to happen. This is not going to happen. And I think it's interesting that the EU is already revving up and saying, over our dead body, are you going to, you know push on with all of this, you know, making this the absolute... Like, he keeps on going on about this being the town square of the internet is Twitter. Oh, yeah, and he like, said that, yeah. Or this idea that people don't use telephones, they use Twitter. Like, as if people don't use telephones, they use Twitter. It's like, no. It'll be interesting to see how it all comes out. I would say to people, don't think that this is as much of a done deal as it appears to be. Mm. And don't think that it's probably really going to change it that much either when it's pretty... Well, look, the know. guy, he's a businessman who's just sunk $46 billion into a product. He doesn't want to kill the product. He, he needs it to try and stay like yeah. some sort of financially stable thing. He's not going to spend $50 billion on One a One thing project. that he did say he was going to introduce just before we move on, but just the edit button, this idea that you'd be able to edit your tweets. Yeah. Well, there uh, is... But then there'd be a, there would be a thread, though, of what you would originally yeah. put up and then the new... Which, which, at least, which the, well, yeah. that, that's the important bit, because yeah. the reason why they've never done it before now is that you could uh, post a tweet with a typo and you might edit the typo or insert a letter that you'd forgotten and that'd be fine. But you could also post the tweet have people see it in its original format and then edit it to say completely the opposite mm. five seconds later. And that's, that's the thing. Because if you allowed somebody to be maliciously mistaken where if like, you ran a breaking news account and you tweeted something and five seconds later you could tweet the contents to say something entirely different, then it's a material skewing of the timeline. So if mm. there was like a, a trace of what you'd originally said, it does kind of maybe undermine the point of having an edit button in the first place, but it would be nice to be able to change a typo on something once in a while. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to just fly through the last couple of bits here. Um, doctor's orders, Donnelly and Watt have refused to attend uh, the meeting of the Finance Committee. Not only that, but we do have the prospect now for the first time ever of somebody basically being summoned to an Oireachtas Committee because up till now, this is a power that Oireachtas Committees have, mm. but they've never had to use it because ultimately once you've got the power in your back pocket no one ever really turns down a, a request to attend for a committee. They'll go, okay, right, fine, I'll do it. Mm. And in most cases, they're perfectly happy to do it anyway. Robert Watt has argued that he doesn't want to go before the finance committee because he's already going to go to the health committee. He's- now, hang on a second. Like, do you think that that's relevant? Like, do you think that's okay? Or do you think you should be in front of several committees? Or should, like, where should this be? Where should he's, this be he's, happening? He's, he's, that's he's the turning question. up at the health committee next week, anyway, Tony Houlihan, which has, okay. which has people... You know, licking their chops already, like, oh, you know. That, that's a popcorn <laughs> committee. That's parliamentary that's box office right there. People, people are mad for this because, yeah. the, like, there will be this fireworks. pay-per-view committee. <laughs> like, but I think, I think it's interesting. I think it's actually something which I think is, has been a good thing to come out from all of this, is that you are having now open discussion amongst mm. the public and politicians about how much impact senior civil servants have in the running of the country and in decision-making. Mm. That's something which became particularly prominent during the pandemic. Mm. People will know the names of Tony Houlihan. They'll know the names now of Robert Watt. They'll know the names of Martin Fraser, who's probably the most significant. He was mm. basically described by many cabinet members as effectively one of the most senior people in the cabinet, despite yeah. the fact that he's not a minister. 
I think it's very interesting that people are now, whether that be John McGuinness um, in the Oireachtas committees or um, other politicians are saying, these guys, are they a little bit too big for the boots? Are they having a little bit too much sway over what's meant mm. to be a democracy? Mm. But like that's something that I'm sure you're, you've, you're, you've encountered as well, mm. is that when you are inside and even working in the Department of Health, mm. that these guys carry a lot of weight around. Yeah, well, and that run. like people would have place, an element yeah. of... Yeah, that guy, that guy kind of runs the place. I oh, know, but he does run the place. Yeah. Like, he, he is the boss and he does run the place and it is the permanent government, yeah. as it were. So, well, yeah. this is the thing, the, the bigger government gets, then the more there is going to be this sense, like, you know, if you want a government to be very high spending and be able to do powerful things and run mm. big programmes, you can't expect a minister to be able to micromanage the affairs, the administration of a department. Like, a minister has to be responsible for policy and political direction. They can't be responsible for, like, HR stuff, which is sort of where a secretary general comes in. But of course, then so much of big policy making, like implementing Slauncher Care, is about HR. It's about personnel management. That that's mm -hmm. where the likes of a Robert Watt comes in. That's why he's kind of something of a celebrity civil servant, aside from the fact, of course, that he's paid more than pretty much anyone else on, on the public payroll, mm. which is one, oh, another reason why he's a bit of a pantomime baddie. Um, so it was decided, we were recording this on Wednesday night, it was decided today that the Oireachtas Finance Committee is going to go through the rigmarole of looking for a minister or looking for the powers of compatibility which means possibly a vote in the doll on whether to haul Robert Watt in, even wow. if he's already appeared in front of another committee, which is why I wouldn't be at all surprised if by the time people have heard this podcast, he has climbed down and he has agreed to actually go for it anyway. Okay, well, we will watch that. And by this time next watching, week, yeah. Yeah, well, the committee, <laughs> With bated I can breath. promise you now the committee will be on the podcast next week and we will be talking about yes, it. So yeah, uh, yeah. we'll even bring you a clip. We'll bring you a clip and everything from that. Okay, look, uh, before we go, uh, we every week we've been asking uh, people for questions and getting their feedback and, and hearing about the things that interest them. So... Um, a lot of these questions are often about, you know, being a journalist and working in the yeah. field and stuff. So I want to ask both of you this one. How do you interact with your crew while also trying to focus on your stories? Well, I'll start by saying that we love the crews, by the way. I the just, the crews know, are the, crews. The, the unspoken heroes of our newsroom. Legends, like, nothing absolute happens legends. Them. Yeah. Um, how do I... Uh, actually, my job is, is kind of slightly curious because often they are set up outside Leinster House while I'm inside watching stuff. Yeah. So I'm actually not as often out on site setting up with them as yeah. long. I often have the, the relative panicked luxury of walking up to a microphone three minutes before bulletin time. So I, I'm not nearly around as much to sort of interact with them before we end up going live. So maybe I'm not the right person to ask. But like we used to travel with them, didn't we? And we like, I mean, it was a real, like your crew is the person that, like it's their story too. So, yeah, yeah. you know, like it's a very much, I think sometimes the viewers don't really fully understand the concept of that, but it's very much a team effort, isn't it? It's you'd very miss, much. You'd miss now the pre-pandemic days of- Of traveling together. In, yeah, pulling in, well, no, not, not necessarily of, of, well, yeah. People like Alvaro um, Valero, one of our camera people is well known for his playlists and whatnot. Big, you big, know, big 90s hip hop man. Do you know but who like, has like, a Martin oh, Minogue CD in their car? Does he? No, Martin Rigney does though. Oh, wow. He's a what CD? He's, got a, he's gonna kill me, a Kylie Minogue CD. That's it was the only CD he had in his car one time, and I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you. totally change my view he's now. He's fabulous, like, he's just so brilliant. What a he's going to kill me for that. Lois, lunch selections and, you know, petrol station sandwiches were just a, you know, but common that's just the nature of the gig, like, isn't it? It is, a lot, yeah. <laughs> a lot of coffees and petrol station sandwiches. So the answer to that question is we love the crews. And the crews are brilliant. They end up being, like, your best friends at work because that's who yeah. you kind of spend the I, most I do time actually, a little bit, I do miss our arrangements before the pandemic were that we would have to share a lift. We'd come into work at the start of the day mm. and then we'd be told what story we were going to be on and also what camera crew we would have. And we would share the lift with them. We'd, we'd hitch a lift with them and go to wherever we're going and film everything. So they would be, like, tied to your hip for, for the entire day. And there is, like, it's a, a shame that with the, the health precautions we had to take in where we all had to travel solo that we, we lost that relationship a little bit. 
Yeah, we're just nearly um, out of time. But listen, before we go, we just want to thank everyone for listening again this week. Uh, subscribe. Subscribe. Please. Subscribe. Good, good job. Good job with the reminders. Like, are, yeah. I know. Everyone, yeah. Rich is looking at me like, don't forget uh, to subscribe. <laughs> also, uh, leave a comment. And Do we'll leave like, a comment. comments out next yeah. week. And also, click the little star button and, and put the, the stars in as well. We'd love, we'd love if you to do that. Uh, we'll be back again next week for another episode of the Group Chat Podcast. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.